You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. A lot has happened over the past month with FTX fraudulently using customer deposits to trade Bitcoin. And now there's some of the biggest withdrawals from exchanges like Binance and others. On today's show, we talk to two leading experts in taking self-custody of your Bitcoin and why it's so important. And my guests are Jeff Andrew and Phil Geiger. Additionally, we talk about retirement and inheritance planning for Bitcoin owners. These are important topics for people to maximize their performance over a long holding period. So without further delay, here's my chat with Phil and Jeff. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm here with Phil and Jeff. Guys, welcome to the Investor's Podcast and Bitcoin Fundamentals. Awesome Preston. to be back. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Thrilled to have you guys. So this is my first and obvious question for you. FTX blew up. You guys are a self-custody company. I would imagine your phone has been ringing off the hook since the FTX bankruptcy. What, what the heck has it been like at Unchained Capital since the FTX blow up? Yeah, I can take this one or at least take the first stab at it. It's been the busiest month that Unchained has ever seen. And what we are really seeing is our value proposition demonstrated very, very clearly. Yes. So as these crypto exchanges and crypto lenders are starting to collapse and shut down withdrawals, our company was designed you know, from first principles, holding your own keys. That's just not even possible for Unchained, right? Yeah. Our clients are holding the keys to their Bitcoin. So for our custody service, our vaults, they always have full control. There's no way for us to prevent them from accessing their Bitcoin. And even for our loans, our clients have one key and keys are distributed. So while all these crypto lenders are rehypothecating client Bitcoin and realizing that when you're rehypothecating something that has a fixed supply of 21 million, it's extremely difficult and you don't just get a bailout. Yeah, our value proposition has been very clear. So it's been a, an extremely, extremely busy month at Unchained and things I think are going to continue as this idea of private keys and real ownership over your Bitcoin continues to permeate into the masses. Jeff, you got any highlights from the past month? It's been an amazing ride. You know, at the same time when all these other companies are collapsing and I don't like to speak ill of the dead or dance on people's graves, but it has been just a huge influx of business for us. As Phil said, it's been a huge validation of our business model. Phil's out there on the front lines because he leads a client-facing team. You know, My role here is more head of legal, so I'm in the back doing all the, the unsexy stuff, so to speak. But you know, just talking to you know, our guys who are out there talking to people, I can tell that it's really getting through to people now. The message that we've been trying to send all these years at Unchained you know, as to why this sort of thing is important this became like a real life illustration of that. Now, what's unfortunate is there were a lot of people that had to get burned before they mm. realized that. As Phil said, you know, rehypothecating in the traditional financial system is one thing. And that really only works because nobody has any idea how, what number of things there are, right? So dollars is easy, right? Because you just print more of them. But even stuff like shares of stock... You know, the market capitalization you read for a company is like an estimate. Nobody actually knows like how many real shares of like Microsoft there are. There's like ballpark figures out there, but it's not entirely clear, right? So that sort of stuff doesn't fly. And I think unfortunately, in this case, it did take a real life illustration for people to get the message. Now, the good news is if you believe like Phil and I do that Bitcoin's really at the beginning of its arc here and it's not too late for you, which I definitely don't think it is. If you were one of those people that did get burned by one of these collapses, actually, it's kind of a good thing for you, right? Because the silver lining is you learned your lesson early and now you can get your hands on real Bitcoin before things go parabolic, maybe. Yeah. And, and to your point about the... Oh, go ahead, Phil. Yeah. I was going to say, before we move on, Jeff, are you telling Preston's audience that you don't run a full Microsoft node? <laughs> no, unfortunately You're not, not validating the number of shares of Microsoft. What's going on? <laughs> Sorry. Well, well, there are exchanges out there and these exchanges make a lot of money rehypothecating 
stock certificates. And I don't think a lot of people, you know, if you're getting zero fees for trading, how is that, how is that company making money? Well, they're making money because they're rehypothecating stock certificates. And it's, you often wonder now that people will have an up close and personal understanding of like FDX's balance of negative, I think it was like 80,000 Bitcoin, negative balance of 80,000 Bitcoin and the ledgers that they had created with other shadow banks and shadow exchanges is how they do this stuff. And you have to ask yourself and you have to wonder like how many paper stock certificates are out there between exchanges that are rehypothecating them in order to make money on the lending that the person who thinks they're holding that share because they see it when they log into their account, it's not there. It's not physically there. It can't be audited because nobody can run a note on something like that, to your point. It's important stuff. And I think that this has just made a whole lot of people think twice about what the heck is going on. When I came into this space, Mount Gox had just happened. I wasn't, I, I showed up in 15, beginning of 15, and that was just all everybody talked about was Mount Gox. And so it was just always beat into my head early on. Like you take possession of your coins because if you leave them on the exchange, it can blow up like Mount Gox. We hadn't seen this. And so now this happens in like such a spectacular way, not in a good way, but like just everybody in the world can see this and we're reliving Mount Gox, but with just, I don't know how many more people are involved in this, but it's insane. And number you got- of people. And it's also the sheen of respectability thing. Cause I, I'm, I date back to around the same time as you, Preston. Yeah. And a lot of people probably rationalized it by saying like, well, Mal Gox was like a trading card website, like yeah. in some other country. And you had to do weird stuff with PayPal, you know, these new institutions now like FTX, oh, they're part of the legitimate system and they're highly yeah. regulated and they have bank accounts and they got you Tom know, they're, Brady. They're, yeah, and Tom Brady and Larry David and they're, you know, talking to congressmen and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So I think this really got across that it doesn't matter whether you're a trading card website overseas or you've got a big fancy office building in Miami or whatever. It's really the same thing at the end of the day. I think we could even make the argument that the flashier the exchange and the more of a me- meteoric rise that it has, the more concern people should have in this particular space because you can't do the fractional reserve games of the legacy system with these assets, with Bitcoin specifically. Like you just can't, you can't fake it. It's, it's crazy. I, and I, f- I feel terrible for all these people who just got wrecked, who did not understand what they were dealing with. And that we're totally duped by the celebrity behind so much of the FTX stuff and a lot of the other things that blew up. But so, as a person would transition from that to Unchained, I've had family members that have called me up and they're just like, I, I want to take self custody. I've heard about it. In fact, they've actually said, Talk to me about Unchained Capital. My uncle actually brought that up to me. And he's like, I'm just concerned that I just don't have the technical competence to take possession of my keys. So how do you guys how do you guys deal with that particular concern? Is this something you hear a lot? I suspect it is, but walk us through what you would say to that type of person. You have got the right guy for this because that is Phil's entire well, not I don't want to say his entire role, because Phil does a lot of really important stuff at Unchain, but that's Phil's primary role. So I'm gonna let him take this one. All right. And I'd like to think that the Unchained Concierge team is designed for your uncle. Now, in my experience, really, the thing that people are, are nervous about, and maybe they don't quite know it yet, but the thing that they're nervous about is having a single point of failure mm-hmm. for their Bitcoin. And they feel like if they're, if they're you know, holding the keys, they're going to make a mistake. They're going to lose all their Bitcoin. And there's been a lot of there have been a ton of news articles of people who you know have lost their Bitcoin. They've you know the famous news articles of the hard drive in a dump somewhere in England or whatever with like two hundred million dollars of Bitcoin. The New York Times article about the guy who forgot the pin to his ledger or whatever. There's a lot of those articles, and the consistent trait among all of them is that there was a single point of failure. Now at Unchained and the concierge team, what we do is we walk clients through setting up Bitcoin addresses where there are no single points of failure. And when I say no single points of failure, 
I can just list them all. Unchained capital is not a single point of failure for your Bitcoin. You as a client are not a single point of failure for your Bitcoin. You have total control of the Bitcoin. You have enough keys to move Bitcoin on your own, but you have a lot of redundancy. So if you make a critical mistake, you don't lose your Bitcoin. And I think that's really what has been resonating with people. And that's why we're seeing adoption tick up. It's this idea of collaborative custody, which is what we do at Unchained, where we have a minority of keys and clients have a majority of keys, means that you can make one of those mistakes without losing Bitcoin. And that, I think, is the biggest pain point that people have with self-custody or even just taking that step of self-custody. The other thing that we do is... So my team will literally ship you hardware wallets, a little devices. We'll help you set them up. We'll walk you through creating them, building a vault. And what we always say is, hey, now that you have your Bitcoin address that you control, it doesn't mean that you need to move you know, all 100 whatever thousand Bitcoin that you have. Or you know, if you're just getting started, it doesn't mean you have to buy all of your Bitcoin and hold it directly there. You can start with just a little bit. Start with 10 bucks. Try it out. Get a feel for it. Learn the tools. We're there for you. You can call us up and we'll hop on another call to walk you through these, these processes. And I think, yeah, it's, it's really designed for folks that are nervous about holding keys. And what's nice about it is I actually believe it is the most secure way to store Bitcoin because there are no single points of failure. There's a lot of really hardcore cypherpunk ways to set up your Bitcoin vault, but a lot of those end up creating yourself as a single point of failure. If you get hit in the head, what's going to happen to your Bitcoin? Are people going to be able to recover it? Yeah. And I want to just tell a real life story related to Phil's point. I know a decent amount about Bitcoin. I knew multi-sig was important before you know Unchained really hit the scene. I used to have my own multi-signature set up for my Bitcoin that I structured myself with Electrum. But when Bitcoin really came... I mean, excuse me, when Unchained came on my radar, which was before I was working for the company... I still moved my coins to Unchained. It's a multi-sig for Unchained. The reason why I did that is because just because I could do all those things in a very complicated and to most people intimidating way, I knew that my family members couldn't if I wasn't around. They were going to have a lot of trouble. So I mean, at that time, Phil was with the company at that time. So it was basically a matter of me being able to tell my family members like, hey, if something goes wrong, you can call Phil and his team. You know what I mean? And they're, they'll walk you through what you need to do to be, make sure these coins don't get lost. Yeah, I think that's an important point for a lot of people, especially for all the tech savvy, you know, people that are out there that, that set it all up. It's just like, you know, I know my wife and yeah, she's not going to be doing the, that type of stuff. So she needs somebody that she can access. You know, I, we have a protocol set up and. But it's an important thing for people to think about. Talk to us about, so that, speaking of protocol, so you guys this past week, I have a thing called the inheritance protocol. Walk us through what you guys are trying to do with this and why you guys think it's important. And then talk to us about two terms. I know this is kind of a multi-part question here, but you got two terms, title and possession. Talk us through all these ideas. Yeah, sure. I'll start and then I'll pass it over to Phil because a lot, I would say the bigger part of this protocol really has been Phil's brainchild. He's been amazing in getting this thing rolled out. So, you know, what I found, what's a little bit unusual about my background for a guy that's, you know, head of legal for a company is when I was in practice in my own firm, I actually specialized in estate planning. So, this was actually my real wheelhouse and area of the law when I was in practice. So when I came to Unchained, you know, I would get a lot of questions from our, you know, client solutions people and client services people who are talking to our customers every day. And they would say, Hey, we get these people that are just very, very concerned about how their loved ones are going to get a hold of their Bitcoin, you know, when they pass away. And, you know, at the time I was kind of like, well, I mean, there's really not, there's not a lot to this, right? It's an asset. It passes like anything else, et cetera. But what I realized when I really took a step back, and thought about that question harder is Bitcoiners tend to have this idea where they only think about the possession side of the equation and not the title side of the equation. And to illustrate what those words mean, I'm, I'm going to give you like a really, really simple example that doesn't even involve Bitcoin because this applies to pretty much any kind of property. Preston, if you had, let's say, a big bar of gold sitting on your desk there, right? If while you after tonight, after we finish recording, if you were to go to bed and I snuck into your house and I grabbed that bar of gold and I ran out the door, I mean, I have possession of that bar of gold, right? But I don't have title to it. 
I don't have any sort of valid title to it. And as a result, if you looked at your security camera and you saw me walk into your house and grab that bar of gold, in addition, I mean, just even forget about all the criminal stuff for a second. You could sue me, right? To get that bar of gold back. It's yours. It belongs to you. The fact that I possess it doesn't mean a whole lot, right? In that, in that instance, per se. You know, the flip side works too. If you had that bar of gold and you just lost it, like, you know, you accidentally threw it in the trash and it ended up at the bottom of a dump, you still have title to it, but it's, you know, in the bottom of a landfill somewhere. That doesn't do you too much, too much good either. So, you know, the deficiency in a lot of the existing solutions for Bitcoin, passing it on to someone in the event of your demise, is they don't consider both parts of the picture. Because people are either going to a lawyer and that's where they're ending it and they're not thinking about how that loved one is going to get their keys, right? So in other words, your will or your trust or whatever your estate plan is that you have set up, that's going to make sure that the person that you want to get title to your Bitcoin gets title, which is critically important. But if there's not a protocol in place where they're able to get a hold of the keys, it's not going to do them a ton of good. The flip side is the one that Bitcoiners really struggle with. Uh, you know, you'll sometimes hear a lot the idea like, well, I don't need any of this fancy stuff. My wife and my kids know where my keys are. So when I'm gone, they'll get my Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, that sounds great. But except for the fact that they, you know, you haven't gone through the appropriate legal process for them to have clear title. And if you don't do that, first of all, they could end up suing each other to try to record, you know, your loved ones could end up suing each other to try to recover Bitcoin from each other saying that they were really the ones that had the entitlement to it. Even if it doesn't happen at the first generation, it could happen multiple generations down the line because you don't have that paper trail of valid title passing down. So, I mean, even... And I don't say this in any sort of a negative way. I say this with all respect. But even if you fancy yourself like a, a cypherpunk that doesn't you know, believe in these systems, you don't have to believe in them. You don't have to be interested in them because they're interested in you, Right. That's like the, uh, the old-fashioned way of phrasing it. So if you want to take care of the people that you really care about and love, you really got to handle both sides of this. So what we did as part of the inheritance protocol, you know, the, the inside baseball of how this all started is actually at least mildly interesting. When I first started thinking about this, I was like, you know, my side of this, the legal side as a lawyer is not... I mean, it's very, very important that you get it done. And we can provide some basic advice on this for people how to seek out an attorney and how to get these documents drawn up. But it's actually, in certain ways, the easy part. The hard part is making coming up with a protocol that is both secure while you're still alive with respect to your keys, while still making it seamless for the people that need to get them after your demise to get those keys. And that's when I, you know, Unchained, we have this great concierge team led by Phil that, you know, even before they got into the inheritance game, their whole deal is helping people deal with their keys. I mean, that's one of the most important things concierge does. So it just struck me immediately. It's like, this seems to me to be predominantly a concierge issue. And I talked to Phil about it and like, he just did an amazing job picking up the ball, really ramming home this protocol, the drafting, all the hard work of really getting this together as a product. And it's something that we could get out in a valuable way to our clients was very much on his side of the ledger. And with that, you know, I'd love to just pass it over to Phil for a second to talk more about the, you know, the keys aspect to it, the the actual possession and how that works. Well, thanks Jeff. That's that's super kind of you. On our concierge calls, I would say the number one question we receive is how do I ensure that my loved ones have access to my bitcoin if something happens to me? And in particular, my non-technical, non-Bitcoiner loved ones. Like we might be hardcore Bitcoiners, but maybe our spouses or family members, they support us, but don't necessarily understand, you know, multi-sig. That's the primary point that we really tried to solve. Secondarily, it's how do I do this today without divulging my Bitcoin balances or creating single points of failure in either like an executor or trustee or a loved one? Again, we kind of go back to this idea of single points of failure. If somebody has the keys, all of the keys to your Bitcoin, they're holding your Bitcoin. They can see how much it is. And then the third point is really, how do I do this so it's not like a really technical Rube Goldberg machine, affordably, simply? And that's really the, the three questions or the three problems that we tried to solve with this first edition of our inheritance protocol. And most of the magic comes from using multi-signature. 
So a multi-signature address is a type of Bitcoin address constructed by multiple keys. Keys are required to build it, required to spend it. In our situation, we use a two out of three multi-signature Bitcoin address. What's really nice about multi-signature is when done correctly, again, it eliminates all single points of failure. But what that means in practice is that a single seed phrase no longer can cause somebody who has that seed phrase to find or spend your Bitcoin by itself. So, you know, we've seen a lot of over the past few years, a lot of like, you know, hacks where phishing emails will go out to people and it'll say, hey, enter your seed phrase here. And it's somebody who ends up stealing their Bitcoin. Now, the reason that that works is because it's a single signature Bitcoin wallet. In single signature, if you have the seed phrase, you have the Bitcoin. Multi-signature just like really separates that idea of a key from the directions to your Bitcoin. I like to call it the treasure map. So in multi-sig, you need to have keys plus your map in order to find the Bitcoin. But as a result, you can safely give one of the keys to an executor or trustee today. And with one key, again, they can't see how much Bitcoin you have. They can't spend the Bitcoin. They're just holding one piece of the puzzle. And that's, that's really the foundation. Now, the protocol itself is really just a series of letters. So we have a letter that you can give to an executor or trustee today. It says, hey, I'd like you to help me out holding a key to my Bitcoin. It's not a single point of failure. You know, If you lose it, just let me know. We'll rotate it out. But please protect it. You will need it in the event that something happens to me. The other thing that we give folks is an actual seed phrase in a tamper evident bag with another letter only to be opened in the event that something happens to you. Now, the second letter has a few more pieces of information. Hey, I was working with a company called Unchained. This is a key to my Bitcoin wallet. Please get in contact with them as soon as you are legally able. So this, you still might have to go through you know, probate court and wait for, wait for all that legal stuff to be cleared out before you can actually get on a phone call with us. But as soon as you're legally able to, legally able to, you can hop on a call with Unchained. We'll help you walk through the recovery process. So yeah, the first edition of the inheritance protocol really is focusing on solving that possession issue. And now what we also do provide is a series of questions and a state planner questionnaire that you can use when you're evaluating estate planners and figuring out whether you want to have a will or whether you want to have a trust, whether you like that person that you're actually interacting with. So we do have some resources there as well, but primarily this edition is helping solve what Jeff mentioned, which was the possession side of the equation. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities 
coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Talk to us about the term probate versus non-probate assets so that people understand what that means. Yeah. So, you know, the, the tip of probate is the traditionally court supervised process of transferring title from the, a deceased person to their ultimate beneficiaries. That's sort of the best way to put it. It's actually set up primarily to, to protect creditors because uh, the credit, they get paid before all your beneficiaries, of course, and any, and everything else. But that's traditionally how it works. But because it is set up primarily to protect creditors, it is very public in the majority of states. And for Bitcoiners with substantial Bitcoin holdings, they may not want the fact that they have substantial Bitcoin holdings to end up in the public record. Because probate records, they're not a public record as in the type that gets published in the, you know, the legal notice as part of the newspaper or everything is in the tiny print. Typically, it's not going to end up in there, but it is in a government office that if someone wanted to, they could walk in and ask for a copy of it and pay a $15 photocopy fee or something and get a copy and find out what assets you had, right? So because of that, a lot of people choose to, as part of their estate plan, use something like a revocable living trust or other similar mechanism that removes the assets out of the probate system and then causes them to be passed down you know, to the next generation through a private process. It's still a legal process. It's just typically what I would call a non-court supervised process. It only ends up in court in the event someone files a lawsuit. Whereas you know, with probate, even if you're in a state with a streamlined probate process where you don't have to go to a court in a traditional sense, there are still public filings involved. Got it. Talk to us. Oh, go ahead, Phil. Did you have something yeah, else? Just, I, I, just to reiterate this point, like there's, there's two points that Jeff has made that really, like I, I myself, am, I would call myself a Bitcoiner first and foremost, and very, you know, just learning about the, the legal side of the equation here. But the two points that Jeff brought up that really stood out for me in this entire process were, was this one that, hey, if you don't do anything, then, and you die, like your entire Bitcoin balance is going to be public record for all of your descendants, right? So whoever ends up getting the Bitcoin, you've now doxed their entire stash. And then on top of that, if you haven't done a will or set up a trust correctly, like those descendants could be suing each other. So it's like all of their Bitcoin could be public record and they could be going through a, you know, arduous legal battle. And so it, for me, it just was like a wake up call. Like I need to get on this immediately, figure out the title. And yeah, it doesn't matter really how cypherpunk your setup is, how technological it is. Like if you still live in the US, you know, or while you die or your family lives in the US, like it's going to happen. All this court process is going to happen. Yeah. And what's really wild too, to the doxing point Phil brought up in most states. So not only will your Bitcoin balance be in the, or at least a rough approximation in the public record, but your beneficiaries' names and their home addresses are in there. So that is not the, the best OPSEC, obviously. Hmm. Fascinating points there, guys. Talk to us a little bit about. IRAs. Break it down for us. I think most people are, you know, they're used to the traditional versus Roth discussion, but talk to us a little bit about checkbook IRAs. I know that's something that you talk about, Jeff. Explain mm-hmm. what that term means and just kind of give us a one over the world on your just opinions of IRAs. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, that was a big part of what I did before I actually came to Unchained was. You know, I was an attorney specializing in in a lot of ways in alternative IRAs. 
And Unchained actually purchased my IRA product back then. And that's how I ended up here at Unchained. So this is an issue, you know, sort of near and dear to my heart. You know, in those days, you mentioned the term checkbook IRA. If someone wanted to hold Bitcoin in an IRA, and for all the reasons we talked about at the opening of the show, they didn't want, you know, those keys to be held on an exchange or some sort of other, you know, Bitcoin custodian or whatever the case might be. The only way to do it back then was through a checkbook IRA, which was a type of IRA where you put in basically you slapped an LLC in between the IRA custodian and the underlying investment, which was this in this case, Bitcoin, to shield the underlying investment from the custodian. So instead of the IRA custodian custodying Bitcoin, the IRA custodian just custodied an LLC, and it was the LLC that actually owned the Bitcoin. But typically, the way you would do it is you would name the IRA account holder as manager of the LLC. And as a manager of the LLC, they were the person that was entitled to actually have control over the keys. To the underlying Bitcoin, I have probably it's have set up over a thousand of those over the years as an attorney. Eventually, though, what happened was just a little bit over a year ago, November of 2021, a tax court decision came down called McNulty. Uh, it was McNulty versus Commissioner of Internal Revenue, and the ruling in that in that case, without getting too far into the weeds, threw a lot of cold water on the checkbook IRA structure. The court, you know, IRAs are required to have a custodian under the statute that enables IRAs, Section 408 of the Internal Revenue Code. And the court basically came up with this idea that if the custodian didn't have involvement in the underlying investment that was underneath that LLC, that it wasn't real custody. The whole thing was effectively a sham and it wasn't an effective IRA structure. I'm paraphrasing to make good radio here, uh, but I wrote an art. If you really want to read the nerd explanation about it, we have an article that I wrote on the Unchained blog that you can go check out. What's it called? So, What's it called, Jeff? Just so I can have a link in there. If you put, it's the only one with McNulty in the title. It's something like what Bitcoiners should know about the McNulty case. We have no okay. other McNulty related blog posts, thankfully. Jeff also has um, <laughs> Jeff also has an hour long webinar where he goes into agonizing details about oh, okay. the multi case. I'll I'll it's have a, a link watch for for people who are into the retirement inheritance side of Bitcoin. I think it's an excellent watch. I'll have a link to that too. I'm, I'll go find the uh, video and we'll have that in the show notes as well. I believe it's linked in the blog post. Uh, oh, it is so okay. Able, yeah, you Perfect. should be able to grab it pretty easily there. But anyway, yes, yeah, so that threw a lot of cold water on this structure. Now, admittedly, the McNulty case is like really poorly reasoned. The judge in the case clearly didn't really have a strong understanding in IRAs because they are a very highly specialized area of the law. I'm an attorney and a CPA, so I am what you would probably call a tax lawyer, right? But my, you know, I sort of like what's what's the the Bain quote? Like I was born in IRAs, you merely adopted them, right? So a lot of you know tax lawyers, if you don't have a lot of experience in IRAs, it can be very opaque to you. Just like if you were to ask me, you know, you know, very arcane questions about international taxation, that's not my wheelhouse. That's not really what I do, you know, international stuff. So I wouldn't have a good answer. So it's not a reflection on how smart somebody is, it's just like what their particular wheelhouse is. So as a result, because it was only a trial court opinion, and like I said, it wasn't honestly all that well reasoned. There are certain providers that have just chosen to ignore the case and keep offering their continuing checkbook IRA structures to Bitcoiners. That's definitely a thing that's still out there. I don't advise it only because I'm a conservative guy. I don't want to be the test case for the next guy that the IRS comes after. You know, the McNulty case was not specifically about Bitcoin. It was actually about gold. Oh, interesting. But but I don't want to be the guy that the IRS decides to float a trial balloon on, right? to see if we can extend this holding over and make it work for Bitcoin as well. So what we did here at Unchained is we tried to to design our IRA product in such a way that our customers could get the key control that they want and that also provides them that security that their Bitcoin is actually there, right? Because that's what you need to know more than anything else. Your Bitcoin is really there. While at the same time, you know, meeting this sort of enhanced definition of custody that the McNulty court sort of whipped up you know, for the first time, it was the first time most of us had ever heard about it and was sort of a departure from earlier checkbook IRA cases 
in the late 90s and early 2000s that had you know been in the tax courts. So the way we did that is our IRAs are not checkbook IRAs. There is no LLC in the middle between the IRA custodian and the underlying investment. You know that that LLC prevents the IRA custodian from actually seeing what's going on, which is what I think distressed the court a lot in McNulty, understandably, because the IRA custodian has no way in that case of reporting, you know, tax abuse to the IRS. If I were the IRS, I suppose that I would not like that either. So what our structure does instead is we title an IRA vault in exactly the same way that an IRA at the most plain, boring, vanilla legacy financial institution brokerage would be titled. For those of you who have IRAs at, you know, Ameritrade or Fidelity or Schwab, go pull up your statement. You'll say it doesn't you'll see it doesn't have your name on it. It'll actually say if it's TD Ameritrade for instance, it'll say TD Ameritrade clearing for the benefit of Jeff Vandrew IRA. That's the way IRAs are titled. And what that means is that TD Ameritrade has legal title to the actual coins. And the IRA account holder has what's called equitable title. What that and what that in layman's terms means is TD Ameritrade has to have vision and some level of understanding of what's going on with the asset. But the ultimate owner, the person who for whom everything's benefit has to be, is that account holder, the guy whose name comes after the for the benefit of. So if you open an IRA with us at Unchained. We are going to title it exactly the same way as a legacy financial institution to try and stay as conservative as possible. But the secret sauce where we're able to give you key control so that you know no one can take your Bitcoin away from you is we, every one of our clients enters into what's called a tri-party delegation agreement with the IRA custodian. Where the IRA custodian agrees like, hey, I'm the custodian over these coins. But I delegate the keys to you and Unchained. And for our IRA custodian at Unchained is Solera National Bank because IRA custodians by law have to be effectively either a bank or a trust company. So they act as custodian, but they, they're legally delegating key control both to, you know, just like any other Unchained vault, two keys to the account holder to, you know, obviously secure appropriately. And then one key to Unchained to sort of act as a backup key. The second thing that's really important to the structure, besides just the titling and the fact that there's no LLC involved, is based on the way that it's structured, Unchained and the IRA custodian have eyes on that vault. And if you're a hardcore Bitcoiner, that might sound scary. But in the context of an IRA, that's exactly what you want. Because the and, Mrs. McNulty lost her tax benefits due to the fact that her custodian had no way, no vision on those assets, didn't know what the investments were. That was the whole turning point in that case. So by giving us that, we're a, we know, hey, you moved coins out of your IRA vault. You have the entitlement to do that because they're your keys. It's just going to get reported as a taxable IRA distribution, just like it's supposed to be. So really, the goal here is to sort of thread that needle, do everything in a tax-compliant way while still giving you control over your keys. All I heard was Bitcoin's better than gold. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to just add on a, a few things that Jeff said. So Unchained IRA, not a self-directed IRA. So I, I actually worked with Jeff before Unchained purchased KeyKeeper IRA. And I, I set up a self-directed IRA for myself to hold the keys to. I had an old 401k that I wanted to roll into Bitcoin. And the process of setting up the LLC was very difficult and arduous. And then on top of that, Every year you have to like fill out these documents that you then have to like physically mail. It was just kind of a headache. There was a lot of like reporting requirements. What's nice about this structure is you're, you're not dealing with legal entities that you are responsible for reporting for. Unchained just kind of takes care of that side of the equation. And then, yeah, like threading the needle through the McNulty stuff is really nice because legally this IRA looks very plain. It's just like any other IRA. But Jeff, I'm at glad. At the end of the day, you have the keys. Jeff, I'm really glad that you told me it was a gold case because a lot of that wasn't making sense to me until there at the end. And you're like, yeah, they could. They can't audit the vault. They can't prove how much gold is sitting in that vault. Where with Bitcoin, they can literally just look at the public address and they can see that every everything that's been deposited into that address is still there. 
Exactly. Um, and that was a big part of like the court's rationale was like she. So what Mrs. McNulty did is she put the gold in her safe with a, I believe it was a post-it note on it that said like, this belongs to XYZ LLC. And one of the, one of the factors the court brought up among many was the fact that, well, I mean, anything could, that gold could have gone anywhere and the custodian would have had no idea. They were just relying on the fact that, you know, she was saying it was still there. Whereas with Bitcoin, it's a very different situation, right? There's a publicly auditable blockchain. Part of your IRA account agreement with your unchained IRA is you agree that, you know, you're going to keep your IRA Bitcoin in this vault, right? And yeah. if it leaves that vault, that's a distribution. So everything is very above board, which in the context of an IRA is exactly what you want, right? You don't want no KYC Bitcoin in an IRA. The whole point of an IRA is you're getting tax benefits in exchange for following a set of rules that you have to be able to prove you know, to the government. So you said you didn't want to talk about international tax law. So my next question takes us... <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I know a little, just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> talk to us about Bitcoin Legal Tender International. So we have El Salvador. Have you guys heard of legal tender laws kind of popping up or other countries around the world kind of looking to adopt similar uh, tender I have laws? heard about them in the United States, actually, at the state level. So states, individual states have the ability to do that. I don't know if it'll pass. In Florida here, our next legislative session is in March, and there's a proposal to make Bitcoin legal tender here. It's nice. I mean, how much, you know, what is, what difference does it make on a day to day basis? I'm not exactly sure, but. Well, from a tax standpoint, wouldn't that be a huge deal down there? Not really. It just means you'd be able to like pay your taxes and your, you know, DMV registration, I guess, in Bitcoin if you wanted to, but it wouldn't change the tax effects of it. The fact that it's like, let's say it's legal tender in Florida, it doesn't change the current IRS interpretation of the law that Bitcoin's property and not currency. So that wouldn't make too much of a difference there. The fact that it is legal tender in El Salvador, not everyone agrees with me on this, but I think it actually does make a difference under the Uniform Commercial Code. It moves Bitcoin from being what's called a general intangible to being money. doesn't matter to you at all if you're listening to this podcast, unless you're you know, in the world of finance and you care, care about things like lending and perfecting security interests. But I don't think that's going to matter very much soon anyway, because the newest version of the Uniform Commercial Code that states are starting to adopt, hopefully rapidly, has an, an entire... I wish it had an entire new section on Bitcoin, but unfortunately, you know, they have to be neutral, so to speak. So it has a section on virtual currency, which is a slightly less odious term than cryptocurrency. That's the one I really hate using. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. 
If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. Guys, so we talked a little bit about FTX at the beginning of the show. From a legal policy standpoint, how, how do you see things progressing? I know there was some big news recently that I know Ethereum was almost going to be bucketed with Bitcoin as far as being a commodity or being viewed optically as a commodity. And it looks like that has been reversed. And now it's just Bitcoin that's going to be viewed as a commodity and everything else is going to be a security. What else are you hearing? And what do you think is important to filter out a lot of the noise? Where, what is the signal that's, that's happening since FTX? You know, from a legal perspective, in terms of what your listeners would really be caring about, probably not too much. I mean, it's the bigger thing I think is just that what we talked about at the top of the show, and that's just realizing the importance of not your keys, not your Bitcoin. And that Bitcoin is just not a rehypothecatable asset the way other assets are. Not that they should really be rehypothecated either. On the legal side, I mean, if you're a nerd like me, you're, you know, following the bankruptcy proceedings in Delaware is probably going to be fairly interesting because we've never had anything quite like this before. I had all kinds of like goofy, salacious details are going to come out in the bankruptcy if you're interested in that stuff. Like I, I don't know. I think we found out a couple weeks ago that FTX owed like some obscene amount of money to Margaritaville Casino, you know, just like goof, goofy stuff like that. But I think that's most of what you're going to see. And then the big fallout's going to going to see going to be like who gets dragged in, down by this. You know, we've obviously already seen that this hasn't been limited to FTX, right? They've brought unfortunately other companies down with them. And I say unfortunately because I don't want to ever see anybody lose their job. But, you know, we may not be done. There may still be more to come here. Companies that are sort of still hanging on by a thread, but won't be able to do that much longer. That'll probably be the thing to keep an eye out for. And for for God's sake, if you have your Bitcoin still on an exchange, get it off. Get it off. to do so. (laughs) Get it off. Put a squeeze on these exchanges. Get it off. Um, another Another thing that we were talking about a little bit earlier in the episode is just the scale of FTX. So I, I actually got into Bitcoin around the same time as you guys after the Mt. Gox collapse. And I just remember, you know, any news article would cause the price of Bitcoin to spike by tens of dollars. Which were now big we're moves, at, which were really big oh, moves. Huge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We were celebrating. But now we have, you know, FTX, we have Tom Brady, we have Matt Damon, you know, it's, it's, at, it's at like the celebrity kind of pop culture level. What I could foresee happening is certain, you know, legislation or governments encouraging, okay, well, now we need like, we need our banking sector to hold Bitcoin because they're the responsible ones. They're going to be able to, to custody client funds. But I think the problem with Bitcoin is that the model of a centralized like third party custodian just doesn't work. Like no company ever has to be a single point of failure for Bitcoin because we have tools like multi-sig, which are just built into the network. So I think we're going to see a lot of the same things just at an increasingly large scale. The other thing I think about is like the central bank digital currencies that these foreign countries are starting to think about and the Federal Reserve is starting to think about. It's like, guys, we've, we've already seen what happens when you airdrop Stellar. Like we're going <laughs> to, we're going to see the same thing with the digital X, Y, or Z currency, I think. So. I just think it's kind of interesting to see the scale at which all of these things are occurring at this point. I re- to, to Phil's point there too, I recently spoke on a panel at the Florida Bankers Association. And because of the way those guys think, one of the questions that one of the first questions they asked me is like, well, what about CBDCs? Aren't CBDCs going to like kill Bitcoin? And what I told them was like CBDCs, like it's not even competitive with Bitcoin. That's just, it's like, that's like saying PayPal would kill Bitcoin. You know what I mean? 
a CB, the CBDCs aren't even really interesting, frankly, because like we have digital dollars now. People, for the most part, aren't walking around. Some people still do, but aren't walking around with huge amounts of cash. Your average person is spending digital dollars on their credit card and then paying that credit card bill over the internet with digital dollars from their bank account that they never physically see in their entire life. And the CBDC, if anything, just like cuts out Visa. So who cares? Like I, you know, that that has nothing to do with Bitcoin. That's I view that as a an interbanker fight or squabble that, you know, I have no stake or interest in. Yeah, I feel like the ironic thing about CBDCs is if they if if a central bank actually releases one, all of the private banks are gonna have to compete with that. Cause like now people can just get an account with the Federal Reserve or whomever. And how do the private banks compete with that service? Well, there's this thing called Bitcoin out here that works totally differently. So I, I view CBDCs as like kind of an admission of defeat and it will accelerate Bitcoin adoption because in order to stay competitive and relevant, these larger banks are going to have to start offering Bitcoin to their clients. Yeah. If anything, I think you can make the argument that the banks are going to help us prevent CBDCs from happening. Which you know is, is it, not a bad yeah, thing, right? Yeah, that's it's a direct a, attack on their business model, right? Yeah, yeah the <laughs> the thing that CBDCs are most comparable to is postal banking. Are you guys familiar with that? No, mm-hmm. talk to us about it. So, in some countries, I believe Japan is one of. Them. I've never been to Japan, so I'm just going by things I've read here. I believe Japan is one of them, but there are others. You can just get like what we would consider basic retail banking services, like your checking account and your debit card, right? You can just get that at the post office for free. So, like, you could get like a post office checking account and a post office debit card. So, banks basically lose that business unless they're providing some sort of enhanced or premium service above that very basic level of service. So, that's, you know, that's the first thing I thought of when Phil was talking about how it hurts a portion of their business model and they'd have to start trying to offer other things to compete with the CBDC. That's what I think it's, I think it's just like, basically postal banking for the 21st century. Yeah. And when we talk about like, so what does the stable coin bring? It brings immediate clearance for a lot of these exchanges that are doing these derivative products and all that kind of stuff. Like they need to have immediate settlement. You can't do that with the legacy rails. That's the whole reason the the stable coin you know, market has just exploded. And when we look at a central bank digital currency, I think they're you know, from a Federal Reserve or any other central bank, they're going to try to make the argument that, well, we're just going to do what all these stable coins are doing, and then we're still going to have control, and we're not outsourcing this to some private company to, to potentially have the funds or not have the funds in their treasury that are backing each one of these units that they're issuing. And the surveillance aspect, and right? That's like the, the thing. Th- then they'll have perfect surveillance without having to rely on subpoenaing somebody else. Which is the scary part. And that's why we <laughs> you can't find a single Bitcoiner that's ever going to want a central bank digital currency for the surveillance aspect that comes with that immediately clearing token. But you know, like we said earlier, the banks might help prevent that from happening. And maybe the stable coins that are being issued are... I don't know, but my, you well, know, I think, Preston, you, you just yeah. touched on something. Like, as soon as you start learning about Bitcoin and you understand, you know, how Bitcoin isn't controlled by anyone, there's a fixed supply of 21 million. Here's how the blockchain works. Here are your keys. Like, nothing that a central bank digital currency can offer you is going to be something that you're interested in. Yeah. So, as these banks are, you know, going to have to offer Bitcoin services alongside maybe their CBDC. People are getting educated and then they're realizing, oh, wait a minute, like actually, I don't want the central bank digital currency. I just want to hold the keys to my Bitcoin. So, yeah, it's, I don't know. I think it's like the game theory of it, I think is pretty funny and interesting. The thing that I think about, you know, and I know when you say the term hyper Bitcoinization, it gets very theoretical. The thing that I think about with the stablecoin piece is, you know, you go back to like 1920s Germany and the prices were moving so quickly that the physical paper just couldn't even possibly keep up. And when I think about a, a potential scenario where call it credit markets start melting down and you're seeing prices constantly changing in stores and people were trying to pay with digital funds. Like there needs to be some type of immediately clearing fiat currency to bridge that transition to a Bitcoinized world where we have these 21 million units that are out there that are bringing calm and stability to a, to a global economy that's being totally wrecked by these policies. 
So like there needs to be something that allows that immediate settlement because as as we trend more towards this, like the the velocity of changing from the old system to the new system, I think is going to pick up pace. It's not going to slow down. And I, I don't know what the right solution is, but it's it's very fascinating to see like all these like solutions for fiat to meet the speed of Bitcoin or to come try to step up to the same pace that Bitcoin, the frequency that Bitcoin's moving at. It's just kind of fascinating to sit here right at the the tip of the edge of this thing and and seeing everything materialize. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on any of that. I have a thought. Just this idea of stable coins, I think, is a really it, it's a it's a misnomer in a lot of ways. There's a lot of misnomers in Bitcoin and general crypto, but stablecoin for me is a really bad one because it's like we know as Bitcoiners, we know that the dollar is not stable. I mean, look at inflation this year, it's double digits on a good month. And, and so the, the, the dollar itself is not stable. And then on top of that, these stable coins are issued by centralized parties. So you have to trust them and they're the ones managing the issuance and they're managing the actual dollars. So you're actually adding a ton of counterparty risk on top of something that isn't stable to begin with. Yeah. And then, and then you have these, these like, DeFi crypto bros trying to do algorithmic stable coins. <laughs> it might as well just be called a turkey coin, right? Like at some point they just all are going to explode. And I think we can expect that honestly from all of the quote unquote stable coins that exist today. I don't think there's a, a single stable coin model that will survive indefinitely. So I just really caution people yeah. to to be careful with these stable coins. Like even the ones that look buttoned up today, like yeah, I don't know. anybody who's sitting on that, yeah, you know, like what what kind of risk that's involved in that? I, I mean, FTX looked buttoned up like a month ago, right? Like the <laughs> the the Miami Heat basketball arena had yeah. their logo on the roof, right? It's it's crazy, it's crazy, yeah. But I think the the message for people listening to this is you got a fractional reserve system that's just, nobody has any clue how many units are there. And they're constantly manipulating how many units are there. And you're putting it against a system that is fully auditable at any moment in time. And it's very easy to know whether somebody has, has what they say they have or that they don't. It's very, you can verify it very easily. These systems are very incompatible with each other. And almost like you're watching a race where you got two runners and they've got to pass the baton. Like we're going from this old legacy system and the baton has to be passed over to this system that is just in stark contrast to the way that things have operated. And I just don't know how that handoff is going to really necessarily materialize itself, but I do real, I, I, I fully believe that the handoff has to happen and it has to happen in some kind of way that, and I just hope that it's, that it's being constructed in a way that, that minimizes the risk and the damage to the most amount of people, limits the, the, the damage to the most amount of people as possible. Yeah, I think the first decade or the, really the first kind of few halvening cycles of Bitcoin, we saw a lot of financial companies founded that are essentially like copying and pasting the legacy financial system onto this new model, into this new paradigm. Now, you know, in the last few years, what we're starting to see is more and more companies starting to understand Bitcoin and the protocol itself and starting to use the tools that are baked into the money in order to create new types of service services that wouldn't be possible with the dollar or with, you know, any other fiat currency. So when I, when I hear of something like FTX or these crypto lenders that are going under, it's like, well, they really just tried to copy and paste the legacy financial system onto something that they didn't understand. There are companies out there that I think do understand the critical differences between Bitcoin and really any other currency. And that's, that's where the signal is amidst the noise. Guys, let's go back to kind of close this out to the inheritance planning and retirement planning. What are the biggest mistakes that people make in this? Like if you could really kind of lay out, like you guys deal with people all day long, what are the biggest mistakes that you see? The most classic, and this is the, this mistake, like 
you could talk to a guy who's been practicing in this area for 80 years and doesn't know what Bitcoin is. And he would actually tell you, give you the same answer I'm about to give you right now is people just assume they're not going to die tomorrow. And as a result, like estate planning, getting your will, your trust, everything else, all those important documents squared away with your lawyer, it's the easiest thing in the world to procrastinate, right? Because it's just not human nature to believe that we could die tomorrow. Even if we all think that we're going to die, yeah, I'm going to die eventually, but not tomorrow. So I can put this off for an extra week. And unfortunately, you don't know when that day is going to come. So it's not at all a good idea to procrastinate on this stuff. Phil, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to talk about private keys. So taking this a different direction, I've seen pretty much everything there is to see when it comes to people making mistakes with private keys. The first mistake is not writing down your seed phrase. You should always, always, always physically secure your seed phrase. The hardware wallet that is holding the seed phrase, it's like a $50 to $150 device. It's not a perfect device. The devices out there that are on the market right now are very good and they are secure, but we shouldn't assume that they will last forever. Having a physical seed phrase gives you a lot of optionality. Now, if you're just holding one seed phrase and it's a single signature wallet, don't put that seed phrase on any sort of internet connected device. Don't take a photo of it. Don't save it in your cloud storage. Keep it physical. A lot of people will maybe even stamp it into steel. There's some trade-offs there. Steel is a very kind of conspicuous item compared to maybe a piece of paper that you can hide a little bit better. With multi-signature, which I think is really the best way to secure Bitcoin because it eliminates all single points of failure. The biggest mistake I see with multi-signature is using a passphrase with each key. So you, you have the ability to add your own word to your seed phrase, and that's called a passphrase. The passphrase becomes a single point of failure. If you didn't write your passphrase down correctly, you capitalized a letter wrong, you added you know, a period or a space somewhere that you maybe forgot, you're now holding a different key. So really, we're, we're I would say, our own worst enemies when it comes to self-custody. I think multi-signature with keys distributed isn't very technical, isn't very challenging, but it, and it has the most redundancy. So yeah, I think the the biggest issues I see with with self custody is just like people going crazy with passphrases, and then either not writing their seed phrase down correctly or not understanding the importance of the seed phrase. The seed phrase is your key. The key lives on a device. The device yeah, helps you use the key. To Phil's point, seed phrases have a fault tolerance because there's a limited dictionary of words. So if you miswrite the word a little bit on one of the words, you're going to be okay. Like You'll eventually figure out which one that was supposed to be. That's not the case with a passphrase. That is not from a limited... That is a very low fault tolerance. You basically can't mess that up at all. One of Phil's guys, if I'm telling this story wrong, Phil, let me know. On the concierge team earlier this year, dealt with a client that I think with a passphrase couldn't read his handwriting. Was that it? And luck, he really lucked out because I think one one of the guys on the concierge team just happened to be able to read it or figure out what he meant. But you know that was very, very lucky. This guy would have lost a lot of Bitcoin had yeah. he not lucked out that way. I've seen one capital letter capitalization be the difference between zero Bitcoin and three digits worth of Bitcoin. <laughs> like <laughs> passphrase, I think passphrases are nuclear technology. I, I personally wouldn't recommend them. I would recommend multi-sig, which does a better job of what we want our passphrase to do, which is eliminate the seed phrase as a single point of failure. Guys, this was awesome. And this is, this is stuff that's really, really important for people to go back and review and think about because everybody has their own setup, has their own solution in place. And just hearing about how I don't want to call anything foolproof, but this this is an amazing way to go about this and to think about it. And at a time like what we just saw in the amount of people's lives that just got wrecked because of the trust in exchanges and just really not understanding what it is that they, they actually possess and handle, it's a good time to re-cage and reset. So I thank you guys for making the time to come on and talk about this really important stuff. Any Anything you guys want to highlight or point people towards? 
Thanks for having us on. I will let Phil do the shilling part of the evening because he's <laughs> the best. Phil is the best guy at shilling Bitcoin. I think I know. <laughs> Go ahead, take you're, it away, you're, Phil. You're referring to Shill Geiger, I assume. Yeah. So I'm Phil Geiger. Phil at Unchained.com is my email. Phil underscore Geiger on Twitter. Yeah, come come reach out. Reach out to Unchained. We we can help you really across the board with your Bitcoin financial services. So starting from this foundation of multi-signature collaborative custody, you have as many keys as possible for the service you're taking. We help you in these different contexts, personal, retirement, business. You can use your Bitcoin as collateral for a loan. You can buy Bitcoin from us. You can set up your Bitcoin in an IRA. Remember that old 401k you forgot about? You can turn that all into Bitcoin. And that's what we're here for. We have this new inheritance protocol that we just released because while maybe our competitors are in bankruptcy, unfortunately, or are adding support for other cryptos, we're thinking about how to secure your Bitcoin dynasty for generations. Gents, thanks for the awesome interview. Preston, thanks for having us. Have a good night, everybody. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.